Well, good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well this morning. I'm feeling a little slim and trim. Got four cups of coffee in me. I'm ready to rock and roll. I'm so glad to be here this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, if you have a digital device on you, if you're watching online, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be meditating and examining and walking through verses 6 through 8. Many commentators call this passage the hymn of Christ. We could call it a Christmas carol, if you will. This hymn actually is believed to govern, it was used and written to govern the beliefs of Christians as the church was first being birthed. As they began to journey throughout all of Judea and to the rest of the world, this hymn would be something that would be um, memorized and meditated on, and it would govern the doctrine and belief of Jesus Christ. But not only that, Paul would argue, and the reason why it's here in this letter to the Philippian church, Paul would argue that not only should it govern the believer's thoughts of Christ, but it should also govern the believer's actions and conduct. That's why it's relevant for you and me this morning. So we're going to be doing that together. I'm excited. Mm. Fifteen months ago, I was standing on this stage. That was the last time I was on this stage. And I was standing here with about 150 other members of Church at the Mill and Legacy Element members as we were commissioned to go launch a new work, a campus, a congregation in Woodruff. I remember crying on the stage going, man, my life is going to change. My, my family had spent nine years in this church, and it kind of feels like a family reunion this morning. So if I start crying a little bit, just bear with me, all right, I'm, I'm a little excited but can I just tell you that standing here 15 months later, can I tell you how God's been working in Woodruff? I had no idea what we were really getting into. We, we planted that campus because we knew that we had many families that lived in Woodruff that came to this church. But when we moved down there, we had no idea that God was about to bring the entire world to Woodruff, South Carolina. <laughs> I'm still shocked. And in that, we have, over the past 15 months, we've had almost 100 people come from the world, come to church at the Mill Woodruff and join in covenant membership. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And now I'm reminded, and I'm going to tell you this morning why it excites me. And it is because we literally have people from all over the U.S. coming to Woodruff saying, God, where do you want me? Is there a church home for me? And can I tell you about a brother named Galen? Galen's in his 70s, moved to Woodruff from Arizona in his 70s with his wife. And his precious wife, when they moved here, had to, get, had to be put into a long-term care facility due to dementia. And Galen was at home alone across the entire United States, away from his family and what he grew up being used to. Praying, God, would you give me a family to belong to? Would you give me a sense of purpose here? In a weird way of hap weird happening, he shows up at our, our shopping mall church down there. <laughs> 
And now he's found a home where he's found encouragement and a brotherhood. And he serves. He opens the door for people. He welcomes and greets people every single morning. It's beautiful. Can I tell you about a brother named Andy from Wisconsin? He moved his entire family from Wisconsin down here. Spent four years looking for a healthy church for his family to belong to. And this past summer, he found church at the Mill Woodruff. And when they came... He said, listen, this was the first time we have literally felt connected to a church body in a long time. And since he's been at Church at the Mill Woodruff, his family and his spiritual life has grown. They began to do nightly devotions at home. His precious girls who are involved in our student ministry now are leading in nighttime prayers and devotions. He's jumped into a small group. His family is flourishing. And can I tell you, they're just two of many stories of what's happening. So I tell you that this morning to say thank you. Thank you for praying for me and for our congregation. Thank you for supporting us. And thank you, DJ, for allowing us to do a little swaparoo this morning. And it's kind of not fair for, really, because this is really a practice run. I'm preaching to you this morning, and I'm going to go preach this same sermon next week in Woodruff. So if you're in Woodruff and you're watching this, turn it off, okay? I'll see you next week. But it's been really cool, you know, we, we've been walking into the Christmas season, we're two weeks in to the Christmas season, we're two weeks away from Christmas itself, and we decided to focus this year and to graze upon the concept of Christ the King, right, this idea of us coming before the King, and as we meditate on that and we find refreshment in that, maybe too, we will also ask the question, does my life emulate the king that I serve, right? And so last week we, we journeyed into Isaiah chapter 9, right? And we, we, we focused on the promise of the coming king. And, and, and Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, right, making a promise to a people that were hopeless, that were broken, that lived in a world of injustice, that lived in a world of corrupt leadership, who were longing for a true leader to come and lead them. God goes, I got you one. It's me. I'm going to be your leader. And when I come, mm, coming in glory, baby, right? I'm going to be the prince of peace, right? I'm going to be the wonderful counselor. I'm going to be the mighty warrior God. The shoulders of the government's going to be on me, and I'm going to expand it forever. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue is going to be under my leadership, and I'm going to right the ship, right? Everything that's broken, I'm going to restore and reconcile. And the people of God and even us this morning, we go, bring it on. This is what we want. And not only that, but all throughout the Old Testament, God kept whispering through his prophets, I'm coming. I'm coming. Right? And then you get into Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and God sends his angel Gabriel to Mary and Joseph. And you know what he says? God said he's coming. And he ain't coming a long time from now, Mary. He's coming to you. Mind blown at that moment, right? I'm coming. And when I come, what am I going to do? I'm going to right the ship. I'm going to make everything right in the world again. And you know what? This is what people who need a leader want in a leader. They want power. They want authority, right? We want to respect this leader. We want him to come in greatness. Can you imagine for a minute 
what it felt like last week to be a Colorado buffalo? Have y'all seen it on the news? The mean, neon, Deion Sanders, the great coach prime, walks into the meeting room, the first team meeting, to a team that has been broken and beat down and sloppy. They've had two terribly bad seasons. Their players are dejected. Poor coaching. And how does Coach Prime walk in? With greatness, video cameras on him, strutting his stuff. I mean, he looks pretty good. He's got his hat on, right? Do you remember what he said to him? I'm coming. I'm going to go back next week, and I'm going to take Jackson State to a championship, and then I'm going to come back. And he looks at him, he says, I'm coming. But he didn't just say that, did he? No, he says, when I come, I want you to know right now, those of you who I can't run off, I'm going to try to make you quit. Oh, what? What? I, th- I thought you were supposed to come and encourage us. No, no, I'm coming. And when I come, I'm bringing my luggage with me, a.k.a. I'm bringing players with me, right? He says, I'm bringing Louis, like Louis Vuitton. <laughs> he says, some of you may want to jump in the transfer portal right now. The next day, the starting quarterbacks enter the transfer portal. He's like, yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> and then he says, hey, and when we get back, team meetings are going to be different. There's going to be no hats and no earrings, right? Some of you are going, amen, right? No more sloppiness. You can literally see one of those players in the back in the video. He starts taking his hat off. He goes, uh-oh. <laughs> Big daddy's in town, right? And you just look at that and you go, mm, that's how a leader makes change, Right? You walk in with greatness and glory and power and authority and you lay it down and the people submit because that's how you make change. And here's Christ, the promised king. And as we think about his arrival, his arrival wasn't even close to this. So perplexing. The eternal God, the mighty warrior, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, how did he come? Shouldn't he come in in power and authority with trumpets sounding to right the ship? Let the enemies flee. Yet that's not what marked his arrival at all, was it? As a matter of fact, what we find in this Christ hymn is that what really marked his coming was humility. Humility. Our king, in his arrival, chose humility over glory. So perplexing. This doesn't make sense. Yet, at the same time, we're going to find out that that is exactly what we needed. So look with me at verse 6. Let's travel together through this. After Paul looks at the church and he says, Hey, I want you to have the same mind of Christ. That is yours in Christ. Verse 6, he leans into this hymn and he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that for a minute. So, so this Christ, this king was preexistent, all right, he he has always been God. That's what this means when it says that he 
He was found in the form of God. Being in the form of God really is a poor English word that really could be translated the nature of God. So he's, he's found in the nature of God, being God. He did not count that equality as something to be grasped. And when you think of the word grasp, you may have the idea of somebody reaching out and taking hold of something. But Christ already had control of his deity. It's already who he was. So really what this, this idea uh, bubbles to the top is, is that he having hold of his deity, his glory, his mighty, his power, he chose. He had a choice. He chose to not let that be the thing, to not let that be the thing of his advantage. He says, I'm not going to let that be the thing that, that, that I, I want to propel onto this world that needs me. But what does he do? His, his attitude of humility leads to action. The beginning of verse 7, he says, but instead he emptied himself. Interesting word. He emptied himself. What do you mean? Do you, you mean Jesus, you emptied yourself of your deity? You ceased to be God? No. What it means is he emptied himself in the same way a father would empty himself when he's wrestling with his son. Let me, let me give you that picture, all right? Last night, my, my youngest son, he's eight years old, Reed, all right? He's, he's getting to that point where he thinks he's bad, you know? And as I'm ironing my clothes, because I'm a domesticated civilian, all right, getting ready for church, he, he walks in with this pillow, and he looks at me, and he goes, let's go, right? And he's holding this pillow. I'm going, hmm. And I size him up. He's eight. He's tiny. And I'm going, I could take a pillow, and in one swift motion, I could uppercut him off the ground into the fetal position on the floor, and then I could stand over him in greatness and Christy, my wife, would just look at me and bask in my greatness, right? And I had a thought process. I was going, mm, it's probably not going to end well for me. So instead, you know, I put the iron down and I go, you got it. Let's go. I let him pick out my pillow. And we walked in the living room. And before we started swinging, I was like, okay, I need to do something here. I got to make this a fair fight. So I put one arm behind my back. And then I closed my eyes. Terrible decision. Because at that moment... Reed started flanking me from the edges and shoving me into the couch. An eight-year-old kid, he's slamming the pillow as I'm swinging mine around. And as he's doing that, my daughter Ainsley, who's 11, who's much bigger, thinks she wants to get in on it too. I had no idea. My eyes are closed. And she comes in and just whops me in the side of the head. I'm going, wait a minute, this ain't right. But in that moment, you have to ask yourself, what is the most loving thing to do? What is the most loving thing to do? Well, the most loving thing to do as a father who is much stronger is to say, I'm not going to use my strength and my ability to my advantage. But instead, in love, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to let you destroy me until you fall asleep. But this is exactly what Christ did. Christ saying, hey, my deity I'm not going to use as an advantage when I come, but instead I'm going to empty myself. In fact, Christ humbled himself in this way, not by emptying his deity. He didn't take off his deity, but instead he put on humanity. 
fascinating. The creator in this moment became the creator. Let me flip that. The creator became creation. What an amazing sight. Look with me at this. This Paul shows us two marks of humility in our king here. And the first being his humanity. At the end of verse 7, he says, And being born in the likeness of men, in the beginning of verse 8, and being found in human form. This is how Christ emptied himself. He was born in the likeness of men and and found in human form. Remember, the form means nature. So being 100% fully God now took on 100% fully man. This is is perplexing to think about for a minute. The most humbling thing that somebody could do is is to make yourself lower than what you are. And in fact, this is what Christ did. This is why we call this the incarnation. God becoming man. I want you to think about this for a minute. In the incarnation, the creator of all the universe became created. The the independent one became dependent. Christ came as a baby. He didn't come as a fully grown man, self-sustaining, being able to nurture and feed himself. No, his very existence as a child depended on two human beings by which he created. It's fascinating. The limited one or the limitless one now became limited. The one that never hungers, never thirsts, never gets tired is now starving And now needs to take a 3 p.m. nap. If Christ would have come in our day and age right now, it'd be the equivalent of a brother who could take a trip from South Carolina to California without making any rest stops. He's he's all all going. But then becomes limited in the fact that every 30 minutes he stops at a quick trip. And he has to get him a hot dog now. And he has to get him a cup of coffee And he has to take him a power nap. The creator of the universe became limited. Wow. The universal one became local. The God of the universe, omnipresent everywhere across all time and space, entered into time and became local. He relied on normal means of transportation And yet one of the most humbling things he did is the ruler of all the universe who makes the rules now has submitted to those rules. And he is now a rule follower. He has submitted to the laws of nature. He now has submitted to the laws of gravity, right, that holds him down. And to the law of Moses, he submitted himself even to the Old Testament law that he created. He lived underneath it. How humbling is this? The pre-existent God, mighty warrior king, came in his arrival as a lowly baby. This is, this is the most precious thing we can think about, right? 2015, Chris Tomlin, Chris Tomlin produced an album, a Christmas album, and he, he, he sang a song. He did not write this song, but, but, and I usually don't listen to a song like this because it's got all those sensitive feels about it, and I'm just really not that sensitive. But... But I think the lyrics are, are, are perfect here. What does he say? He says, he says, Christ could have come like a mighty storm with 
With all the strength of a hurricane, you could have come like a forest fire with the power of heaven in your flame. But you came like a winter snow, quiet and soft and slow, falling from the sky in the night below, in the earth below. You could have come in all of this glory and power and might, and yet you chose to come in the most humblest form you could possibly come. You took on the emotions and the suffering and the limitations of all mankind. I think this is funny. Because in this text you see him, you, you, you see the Christ him saying that God chose this. God, uh, Christ emptied himself. Nobody emptied him. He emptied himself. Nobody humbled him. He humbled himself. So he chose this. And in his choosing to become a human, he didn't just stop there in his humility. Be, and, and it kind of makes sense, too, because I personally would be tempted that if I was going to humble myself in the fact that I'm going to become a part of my creation, I'm still I'm still coming high flying. I'm still coming in royalty, right? I'm still coming with, with, with chariots of fire and, and a mighty military. And, and I'm going to have cameras following me. I'm going to eat the best of what I've created. And I'm going to demand authority. Yet, what is that to a God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills? So instead of choosing to not just come as a human and put on humanity, he also chooses to endure humiliation. Look at what it says in verse 7. He says he, he emptied himself by taking the form. There's that form again, this, this nature so the nature of God took on the nature of humanity, and the nature of humanity, he took on the nature of a servant, a slave. The Greek word there is doulos, which is bond servant. It's the lowest class you could possibly be, a non-citizen, non-independent, not owning anything, yet submitting to all authority, all people, all systems, all structures. Christ humiliated himself by emptying himself to take on the form of a servant. Who is this Christ who became a slave? And he chose to own nothing, if you think about it. He chose to own nothing. He never owned land. He never, had a, he never owned a home. He never owned transportation. Everything he had, he borrowed. He even borrowed the tomb by which he was buried in. He owned no business, had no swag. He refused any special advantages even as a human. The only thing he took upon himself, church, was the burden and guilt of others' sin. His entire ministry was marked by this. Not only was his arrival marked by humility, his ministry was marked by humility. 
Can you, do, do you remember, remember with me for a minute when, 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 he's, when he's walking with his disciples and they're arguing about power and authority, right? And, and, and he looks at them in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 26, and he, he looks at them and he says, hey, this is the way the Gentiles rule the world, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great. Now stop there for a minute. Christ is looking at them going, I'm great. You look at me. I'm the preexistent Christ. I'm the mighty warrior king. But if anyone would be great among you, must be your servant. He turned the world upside down. And he says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ in his humility came to serve his creation. He's coming to right the ship. And what he did when he walked into the meeting room is he came and he, he, he washed the feet of those who he was serving. Whoa. Who is this humble king? Yet it doesn't stop there, does it? Look with me in verse 8. And it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death. The rule maker is now a rule follower. Who is he obeying? He's obeying the Father's will and plan. So he submitted himself to the rule and design and plan of the Father in perfect obedience. In perfect obedience. And what does it say he did? He said he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To death. I don't know about you. I'm for this whole humility thing, okay? I think it's wise to, 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 to serve the people that you lead. I think it's wise to, you know, when, when you're fighting with your children to handicap yourself a little bit, right? But when humility and submission leads to humiliation, that's when I tap out. I will naturally humble myself and serve others, and submit myself to others. But the minute it turns into disrespect and humiliation, that's when I assert, reassert myself and go, wait a minute, that's not going to happen. I'm out of here. As a matter of fact, that is a natural human thing, isn't it? We all are, if you're followers of Christ this morning, we're all for this humility thing as a Christian. Yet the breaking point for many of us is the humiliation part. We will not be disrespected. Yet Christ goes, watch me. Let me show you how it's done. But Christ, he allowed himself to be humiliated. His arrival was marked by humility. His ministry was marked by humility. And then his death was marked by humiliation. So he came to the people, he served the people he was to lead, and how did they in return honor him? Matthew 27, he tells us the, the testimony of what happened. And as he was before Pilate, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you who they say you are? He goes, you say that I am. 
And then he turns them back over to his guards and his guards, and they, they stripped him. They put on a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. What an ultimate form of humiliation here. At the coronation of a king is where the people who the king is supposed to serve, the people who are supposed to submit to the king, the people come and they, and they crown the king with a crown that symbolizes their power and authority. And yet what Christ got from his people was a crown of thorns and mockery and humiliation. And yet we step back and we know we're watching this happen and we're going, Jesus, you can stop this right now. You can, you can stand up for yourself. You can command an army of angels to come. You can, you, you can take control of this entire situation. Do not let these people mock you. Show your power. Let this be your breaking point. But he was so obedient to the Father's will and plan, he stood there and allowed himself to be humiliated by his creation is going on. And yet at the height of this Christ hymn, it doesn't stop there. It's like we're almost asking Christ, how low can you really go? And he says this. At the end of verse 8, he says, not only was he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, but then they, the psalmist or, the, or, or, or Paul, he emphasizes death on a cross. The ultimate form of humiliation. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves. Citizens of Rome never had to endure this type of treatment. If you were a citizen of Rome and you committed the heinous of crimes, this was not the way that you would even be put to death because it was so humiliating. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Why? Because to the Jews, any man that hung on a tree was cursed. And Christ allowed himself to be so humiliated by his people that he was rejected by the entire world. Total shame to the point where his disciples turned their back on him. And the ultimate slap in the face came from the sign that was above his head as he was suffering. Matthew describes it in verse 37 of chapter 27. He says, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now put this in perspective for a minute. This isn't the king of the Jews. This is the king of the world. This is the king of all time. This is the king that's going to right the ship. This is the almighty warrior king. He's not just the king of the Jews. Yet in that moment, he's, he's dying. But here's the good news. You ready? Jesus chose to go low in order to go high. His first coming was marked by humility. But make no mistake, his second coming will be marked by honor. And this is, this is great because 
the Christ hymn doesn't end at Christ's humiliation. It ends at Christ's honor. Look with me at verse 9, would you? He says, hey, therefore God has highly exalted him because of his humility, because of his perfect obedience as a servant. God the Father has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's my king. That's my king. That's your king. And so we wanted this king to come the first time. But praise God, he didn't come the first time this way. Why? He humbled himself on the cross because we needed forgiveness of our sins. We needed restoration and redemption in order to become citizens of the king. Because had King, had king Jesus come in verse, like verses 9 through 11, there would have been no hope for you or I because judgment would have happened in that moment. And yet it didn't. Praise God for his humility. He went low in order to go high. And can I just tell you something? If you, you read the letter of Philippians, Paul, Paul tells him in verse 27 of chapter 1, he, he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. Meaning you are citizens of the king, baby. You live a life worthy of the king. You, you live like you are a citizen of the king. And you may ask, well, then how is a citizen of the king supposed to live? Because I don't know about you, but you and I, we cannot emulate Christ's glory. We don't emulate verses 9 through 11 of this Christ hymn. There's no way. But we can absolutely emulate and are commanded to emulate Christ's humility. Why? Because we are human. We know what it means to be limited. We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to need a 2 p.m. nap. And at the same time, we have the ability to humbly serve those around us. Question this morning. Church family, will your life be marked by humble service and obedience to the king? We're in the Christmas season. How do you want your life to be characterized as? My prayer for you is that your spirit this Christmas will be marked by the same as Christ, which is marked in humility. So here's the question this morning, church family. As we reflect on the humility of Christ, the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, how low can you go? Not how high can you go. Christ has got that. How low can you go this Christmas? Because as citizens of the king, what we learn from Christ is that there is no person that is a waste of your time. There's not one person in your life that is a waste of your time and presence. There's no task too small for you. Someone in your life needs your time and your attention and your resources and your wisdom. Someone maybe, just maybe, needs your forgiveness. And every bit of that requires what? Humility.
This is the spirit that we are called to emulate this Christmas. The relationships in your life need the spirit of humility. So as you spend the rest of these two weeks and you're getting ready for Christmas season and you're focused on your agenda and finishing out the year strong, I think what Christ is calling you and I to do is to humble ourselves and to empty ourselves and to serve at the pleasure of the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you this morning. Father, we're so limited that we can't even exhaust the reality of this hymn that you've given us. Our minds and our hearts can't even fathom. You humbling yourself and then allowing yourself to be humiliated for us. The limitless one, the mighty king, the warrior, you stepped down and you you came to us as a child. You lowered yourself to the lowest. You spent your entire life pouring it out in service to others and obedience to the Father's will. Yet at the same time, you are our King. Father, you've called us to be citizens of your kingdom. Father, may we emulate that this Christmas. Because Jesus, you're worth it. In your name we pray.